Oh, Father, we pray that you'll lead us now as we turn to your word. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher. Lord, just be amongst us now. Lord, just be upon me and enable me to, to do this study. And Lord, I pray that everyone will be able to receive it and to hear your word. And Lord, we pray that it'll go into our hearts and it'll just be part of the process of you changing us. Oh Lord, just lead us now, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Right, okay. <clears throat> Last time... You'll remember we looked at the question of the function of eldership and tonight we're coming on to do the nature of eldership. Now, when I announced that last time, some people looked puzzled. What's the difference? Well, you'll see as we go along. And the key to understanding what I want to home in on tonight is to understand that eldership is functional. It's not a positional thing. We've seen earlier on in the series that... Uh, any idea of a clergy-laity divide is completely wrong. You've got the priests, the clergy, and you've got the people, the laity. So we've seen that a clergy divide is completely wrong. It goes right against what the Bible teaches. But you see, so is any idea of an elder and people one, or a sheep and shepherd one, sorry, the shepherd and sheep one. The idea being that you've got the shepherds, the leaders up here, and then you've got the people down here. And for instance, this is one of the reasons why, I mean, it's like you can go to some fellowships and you'll find that no matter what they're doing, the eldership, the leadership, always managed to be up front and sometimes got, you know, a rostrum or something. And the church is never allowed to forget who the leaders are. It's almost as if they've got to be there keeping a hawkeye on the sheep in case they're getting up to something. So the point is that what we're seeing is that any idea of the leaders being separate from the people is completely wrong. And the reason for that is that we've got to understand that although elders shepherd the flock, and we've seen that, elders shepherd the flock, the point is that they are themselves sheep as well. Now this is the important thing. As soon as you've got the idea of a pastor or an elder being a shepherd, the point is a shepherd leads sheep, but in the church, the shepherds are sheep as well. It's not that you've got shepherds leading sheep, you've got sheep leading sheep. But some sheep have got to be shepherds as well. Can you see that? Tremendously important. Forget that and you end up with practically a clergy laity divide, even though you've got no official clergy. And it's for that reason that we've seen that people in the church, men who are superior or people who are officious, standoffish people, mustn't be made elders. You can only have people who, if that is part of them, God has dealt with it. Because if people with that characteristic, that outlook, become elders, then immediately you're running in danger of having the shepherds up here and the sheep down here. And it's the same with people who are loners. You know, sometimes you meet someone who are real loners. I'm not talking about people who are a bit of a loner, 
But some people, they are real loners. They go it alone. Again, someone like that would never make a good elder because they would all the time be standing off from the people that they're supposed to be leading. And so what I want to do is to define what an elder is. What is the nature of an elder? It is this. An elder of a church is simply one of the lads who's happened to land the job of being an elder. And that's it. That is the nature of eldership. An elder is just one of the lads who's happened to land the job of being an elder. It's a function, and that's all. And the reason is that elders do not lead from on high. We're going to see that in a minute. Elders must never lead the people from on high. The Bible teaches that they lead from among the flock. There's a big difference between leadership from on high and leadership from among. And elders lead from among the flock because they are part of the flock. Can you see? It's not that the shepherds are in charge of the flock. The shepherds are sheep who are part of the flock as well, and they lead from among it. Go to Acts 20. We spent a lot of time there. You remember the little sermon that Paul the Apostle gives the elders from the Ephesian church, Acts 20. And in verse 28, he's having his little pep talk to them, and he says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you guardians. Now notice, he says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you guardians. Now that little phrase, in which, the Greek is enho, and it means in which. It does not mean over which. Can you see the difference? Now, obviously, elders are over the church relative to being leaders in that sense. We've seen that they are overseers. But what Paul is emphasizing here is that because you've got enho, all right, it's emphasizing the idea that as elders, their job is to serve among the flock. It is service among the people. It is not supremacy over the people. So elders are overseers, we've seen that. They're overseers, but they are not overlords. And I think, you know, most people here have probably had the experience, at least some, of Christian leaders who aren't overseers, they are overlords. They're not leading from among the people, they're apart from the people, and they're leading from on high. Now that is not the nature of eldership as the Bible teaches it. And of course, the reason why it mustn't be that, you know, it's over rather than among, the reason that leaders can't dare sit on high and lead from up there is for this simple reason. They are sinners just like the other people in the church that they are leading. Again, this verse, he says, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Elders aren't just there to make sure that sort of sin doesn't run rampant in the church. Elders have firstly got to make sure that sin doesn't run rampant in them. Can you see? That's the order. 
It's not, you know, sort of you be there to make sure that you sort the flock out if something goes wrong. Elders have got to make sure they're sorting their own lives out. So can you see, shepherds are sheep as well. They are sinners, just like the people that they are leading. Now, having said that, there's a qualification for being an elder that we haven't looked at yet. We've seen two lists in the Bible, but there's another one that we haven't touched on yet, and we're going to do it now. Go to Luke 22, a vital qualification for anyone who thinks that they're going to be an elder. And in Luke 22, and we're going to see in the life of Peter how he failed on this basis and how God dealt with him so that he was then able to be an elder. Luke 22, and uh, from verse 31, let's read. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. And he said to him, this is Peter's reply, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you three times deny that you know me. Now, what we've got here, all right, is that Jesus is saying, Peter, Satan is going to sort you out good and proper. The idea of sifting like wheat, give it a good bashing and you get all the chaff out, all the rotten stuff, all the muck, so that the good stuff is left. And this is Jesus saying, Peter, that is going to happen to you. Look at Peter's response. He said, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to die for you. I don't need sorting out, Lord. I'm ready to die for you. What do you mean? I'm here. I'm ready. Lord, you name it, I'll do it. You can count on me. All right. Now, Jesus knew full well that that was where Peter was at as a Christian. We have a future leader here, but Jesus knew that that is where Peter was at at that time as a Christian. And look what he says. He says, when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. When you have turned again, he's talking about repentance there. Turning again, turning round, going the other way. He says, when you've repented, strengthen your brethren. And when he says strengthen, that Greek word there is sterizo, and it means to establish. Just go over into 1 Thessalonians, and we'll see that word again, so we understand exactly what we're talking about. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 2. And this is Paul writing to the Christians, and he's explaining why they sent Timothy over to them. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's servant in the gospel of Christ, to establish you in your faith and to exhort you. So here, Paul is talking about the fact that he had to send Timothy to a church. You know, they needed to be led and they needed to be strengthened. And that is the word here. It's talking about the role of a leader in a church. And so here, what Jesus is saying to Peter, he says, Peter, when you've been sorted out and when your act has been got together, all right, then you can go about being a leader of God's people. All right. Now then, go over to John 21. And let's see 
something that Jesus does. This is the second act of the same little play that Jesus has got going with Peter. Remember, he's talking to Peter as a future leader. And what he said to Peter thus far is, hold on, mate, you're not ready. You're not ready. All right. Now then, John chapter 21, we'll start reading from verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now what we've got here is that Jesus is now saying to Peter, right, now you are ready to lead. He's actually appointing Peter, as it were, as an elder over God's people. But the re why is it, why does Jesus do this thing that three times he says, do you love me? Why three times? And why was Peter grieved on the third time? I'll tell you. It's because Peter denied Jesus three times. Is he? So here, Jesus is now saying, Peter, you're ready now to lead, and reminds him of his utter and total failure. Is he? Three times do you love me and Peter denied Jesus three times. Now then, the qualification of an elder is simply this. They must be someone who has totally and utterly failed as a disciple of Jesus. And here, as Jesus is dealing with Peter, preparing him to be an elder, it's exactly what Jesus is doing with him. The Lord is working to make Peter aware of his absolute failure as a believer. What was the problem when Jesus said, Satan's going to sort you out, sift you like wheat? Peter's saying, Lord, I'm fine, I'm there, I'm going to die for you. Can you see? And here's the point. Peter, as a disciple, was a success. And success is deadly for any Christian. You see, Peter thought he was all right. Peter thought that he was doing okay. And Jesus had to work and to show Peter, because here's Peter saying, Lord, I'll die for you. So the Lord works and he sets up three opportunities for Peter to die, to do it. Right, you said you're going to die for me? Right, three opportunities. Bang, bang, bang. And Peter blows the lot. You see, because the point is that Peter was only a success in his own eyes. He was never a success, but he thought he was. And it was even more dangerous for him. Because he was an upfront guy, nothing wrong with that, but because he was an upfront guy, other people thought he was a success. Do you see the point? So Peter thought he was a success, and the other disciples thought that he was a success. But none of them had realised, most importantly Peter, that he wasn't a success. He was a total and utter failure, deceived about himself. And therefore God works 
to prove to him beyond doubt that he is a 100% failure. And you see, the thing is, it's this. Christians who are successful Christians are the deadliest elders and leaders that the church can possibly get. One of the most dangerous things to do is to have people in leadership in the kingdom of God who are successful Christians. You know, they're up front. They've never realized their nothingness, their total failure before God. Why is it so dangerous for a successful Christian to lead? I'll tell you. How can a successful Christian lead other Christians who are failures? Do you see the point? A successful Christian who was leading failures, because most Christians, I think, are aware they're failures. A successful Christian who was leading a church of failures would be completely unable to identify with the people he was leading. Do you see the point? And he would end up frustrated, he would end up impatient, he would end up being harsh, intolerant and authoritarian. And if you think about it, he'd have no choice. Because there's him, a successful Christian, trying to lead other Christians who are failures. And eventually he'd go bananas thinking, why are they such failures? Why can't they just do what I tell them? You see, and he'd eventually, well, he'd get harsh, impatient. He'd probably have a nervous breakdown. And you see, the thing is this, a believer who has not yet become a total failure as a disciple for Jesus, cannot be an elder. Because he is as yet not far enough on in the Lord. Can you see? Any Christian who thinks they're doing all right, that they're a good Christian, that they're a successful Christian, they've got their act together, so why hasn't everyone else? Any Christian who's still at that stage thinking, well, I'm, I'm good, you know, I'm a success story. All right? All they're proving is that they are spiritually immature. They might have been in ministry for years. They might be a leading minister. They might be famous as a conference speaker. But what they're proving to those who understand the scripture and the heart of God is that they are still baby Christians. They are still deceived about themselves. Now, what is the reason why Paul prohibited new converts from being elders? Precisely because they're babes in Christ. Precisely because they haven't learned enough about one, the Lord, and two, their own sinfulness to know what absolute failures they are. And there's pride there. Underestimating the devil, underestimating their own sinful natures. And therefore, Satan can come in and, you know, he can do all kinds of things through them. So can you see the point? Jesus made sure. He told Peter in advance that Peter was going to lead. But before Peter could actually start doing that, Jesus had to wait until Peter realized that he was of himself an absolute failure before God. A leader who has not come to the end of himself in following the Lord is a leader who is not going to be able to identify 
with the people he's leading because he's going to be different to them. They'll be coming to the end of themselves, but this leader, he's got his own resources to draw on and he'll end up frustrated with them. The point is this, you can only lead people where you yourself have been. And therefore, a leader of a church, the elders in a family of God, have got to be there to lead the people through abject failure in their Christian lives. How can the leaders do that if they themselves haven't been through it? You see, you can only lead people where you yourself has been. Another example of this was old Moses. Because Moses had a calling from God and his calling was to lead God's people, to lead Israel out of Egypt into Canaan. And Moses kind of knew that he'd been called to that. And you'll remember that when he realised that, there was an occasion he saw an Egyptian beating up a Jew. And he kind of, he went in there, the great redeemer, he went in there to sort it out. And he ended up murdering the Egyptian. He had to flee out of Egypt. And of course the result of that is that the condition of God's people was worse than it was before he did his bit. Because Pharaoh took it out on them, you see. So there he was, you know, the big leader of God's people. In he goes, and what does he do? He blows it absolutely, totally. Now, what was Moses' problem? I'll tell you, he was a success. You've called me, Lord. Right, off we go. Let's get on with it. See? And he went out there completely in the flesh. And he blew it. But it was other people who suffered. Now, Moses' problem was what? Self-confidence. Where did he end up? 40 years in the backside of the desert. 40 years of being a nothing. Now, why was that? Well, because God wanted him to realise he was a nothing. And 40 years wandering the desert, leading sheep through the wilderness. 40 years of it. And you see, through that, he started to realise the truth about himself. He realised that he was nothing. And what's interesting is that after that 40 years in the wilderness, He'd realised the truth. Satan has sifted him like wheat, just like he did with Peter. Moses realised he could never lead God's people. This was not something he was going to do. This was something God was going to do. And it's interesting because when he had the experience with the burning bush and kind of God saying, all right, Moses, time now. See, Moses was 40 years too early, first time. He said, right, I'm ready, Lord, to be the leader of God's people. And God said, no, sorry, that's, that's, that's not for another 40 years. <laughs> See? So 40 years later, God appears to him in the burning bush. And he says, all right, Moses, time now. Off you go. Lead God's people. See? Now, Moses' reaction was very interesting. 40 years earlier, he couldn't wait to get out there. All right, Lord, right, I'm your man. 40 years later, he was full of excuses. A hundred reasons why he couldn't do it. Now, that was hardly faith, and God had to deal with him about that as well. But the point is, Moses had learned the lesson. He had no confidence in himself whatsoever. And therefore, he was then ready. And when he was leading God's people through the wilderness, he could sympathise with them. Why? Because they weren't doing anything that he didn't know was in his own eye anyway. He, he'd realised his own sinfulness, so he could identify. That didn't mean he let other people get away with their sinfulness because God didn't let him get away with his. 
but he could at least sympathise with them. He could at least say, right, okay, you've really, you really are in a mess, aren't you? You really have blown it. You really have got some sin to deal with here, haven't you? Right. Now, let me tell you what I did. <laughs> Can you see? And he'll say, I've been there. He's not condemning anyone. He's been there. God sorted him out. And what's interesting is this. Moses had to lead God's people out of Egypt into Canaan. And they had another 40 years in the wilderness. It was the same wilderness that Moses had been aimlessly wandering around in for 40 years already. <laughs> he knew the wilderness like the back of his hand. So when a leader, when an elder sees God dealing with people in the church, and he sees all their uppers and, you know, their ups and downs, and he sees all the, you know, whatever's going on, he can identify it because he has been through it. Therefore, there's no condemnation or anything like that at all. So it's tremendously important, this lesson, that through Jesus dealing with Peter, Peter was a success. Jesus didn't allow him to actually be a leader in the church until he had realised his own absolute failure. Then he was safe to be a leader. Now, let's ask, our question, uh, ask a question. Did Peter learn? Well, yeah. Go to 1 Peter, chapter 5, and let's see what Peter says about eldership. And I think you'll have to agree he learned his lesson. 1 Peter, chapter 5. We've read these verses, but now we're going uh, earlier on in the series. We've covered them, but now from a slightly different angle. This is Peter, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now, I wonder how many of you earlier on, when I was talking about Peter being prepared as an elder, you were thinking, but I thought he was an apostle. Were any of you thinking that? Oh, well, no, never mind. You should have been. <laughs> you should have been thinking. Why is Beresford going on that Peter was being prepared to be an elder? He was an apostle. Well, yes, he was, but he was also an elder. So here he says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, blah, 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 tend the flock of God that is in your charge, not by constraint, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. Now, here's Peter saying, look, this is how I do it, this is how God has dealt with me, so I do it, and this is how I want you to do it. So let's see exactly what type of elder Peter had become and what directions he's giving to these elders here. He says, first of all, I mean, tend the flock of God. We've been through all that, feed them, look after them. We've, we've done all that, all right? And he says, not by constraint. Now, that means... If you're constrained to do so, it means you've got to do it because you've got no choice. It's doing it reluctantly. And Peter says, look, if you are sort of like whatever it is you're doing in order to be a good elder to your flock, if you're doing it because you have to, he says that's totally the wrong reason. If you've got people who are sort of leaders in the church, and underneath the, I mean, okay, it can happen to anyone, but underneath constantly there's this thing, oh, it's such a pain. Oh, you won't believe what I've, oh, dear, I, can you say? Then that is not doing it willingly. Can you say? If it's that much trouble to you, don't bother. That's what Peter's saying. 
if you're going to have a position of elder, if you're going to be leading God's people, then make sure that it's not because you've got to, for whatever reason. All right, he says, not by constraint, but willingly. Willingly. And of course, why? Well, someone who's doing it because they have to is not going to be doing it because they love the people. But someone who's doing it willingly is more likely to be doing it because they love the people. And if someone who's an elder does genuinely love the people, then he will be doing it willingly. He won't be concentrating on, oh, what a pain. And yes, it can be a pain, but he won't be concentrating on that. He'll be saying, what a privilege, what a privilege that God's using me to help other people. He won't be thinking of himself. He'll be thinking of others. All right. So not by constraint, but willingly. And he says, not for base gain. We've already seen that in the qualifications. Not kind of ego. It's not a power trip or money or pre anything like that, but purely because you love the people. So not for base gain, but he said, but eagerly. If you're going to be an elder, be an eager elder. And that word for eagerly is prothumiae, and it means forwardness of mind. It means that, that what you're having to do as an elder, it's at the forefront of your thinking and desires all the time. A real eager beaver elder. And why? Why an eager beaver elder? Well, two reasons, and they're tied up. Because he's keen to serve the Lord, and he's therefore keen to serve the people. This is what Peter is saying. That's the kind of elder. And remember, if Peter had become an elder without this, you know, small matter of denying Jesus three times, I mean, God devastated him. He devastated Peter. All right. But if Peter hadn't have been through that, I mean, can you imagine the kind of leader he'd have been? He'd have been a sergeant major. He'd have been whipping everyone into order. You know, sort of making them feel guilty because they didn't have the kind of faith he did. You see, that's the kind of guy Peter would have been with the best of intentions. With the best of intentions. But he wouldn't have had a heart for the people. He'd have spent his whole time saying, why are they such a load of thickies? Is he? And the failure to realise that spiritually he was as well. So there's Peter. He learned and he said that's what an elder should be. And then he goes on to say, not as domineering over those in your charge. Now here is how not to be an elder. Not domineering over those in your charge. Now that word there is tremendously interesting. The Greek word is katakurio. And, it, you know, not domineering. Catacurio. And what's interesting is that in the Bible, in the New Testament, it is only used of three things. And the other, it's used here, and the other two things are very interesting. It is used, and we're going to see this in a few moments, when Jesus talks about the wrong use of Gentile authority, when he says that how they lord it over people, the word is used there. And the only other instance of it being used is of demonic control of people. Now, that's very interesting. It's used of wrong Gentile authority, you know, lording it over people, dominating them. 
you know, I'm in charge and don't you forget it. Yeah. It's used of that. And it is also used of demonic control of people. Go to Acts 19. Keep your finger in 1 Peter 5, but go to Acts 19 and we'll see the word there. And it's the story about the, the sons of Sceva, you know, the guys, they weren't believers and uh, they got it into their heads that it would be a good thing to try and cast out some demons. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 16, and you'll remember that what happened was that the man with the evil spirits, what happens is he beat them up and they fled on their way naked. So in Acts 19, verse 16, it says this, And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, and mastered all of them and overpowered them. Now this is talking about what evil spirits do to somebody, all right? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and mastered all of them. Now that is catechurio, mastered. And here it is used of evil spirits dominating people. And that is the only other time that it is used in the Bible. And what it tells us is quite simply this. If you dominate anybody, that is, by definition, satanic. God doesn't dominate people because they have got free will. And if there's one thing that leaders of churches should not do is to dominate people <coughs> under their authority. And the domination of authoritarian elders, and there is a lot of it around today, these heavy shepherding places, the authoritarianism, where you can't make a move without checking it with your leaders, that is demonically empowered. And it's tremendously important to understand that. These fellowships where the eldership is really in charge of everything and no one is free to make a move about anything unless the elders okay it, that is actually demonic. That comes from evil spirits. And the reason that you see people crumble and cower under it, I mean, they shouldn't, they should stand against it. But the reason it's so powerful is because there are demons behind it. It is a supernatural thing. When someone is dominating you and they're squeezing you, the mere fact that somebody wants to do that, regardless of why, if somebody has a will to dominate, be it in a church or be their friends, the moment you have a will to do that, you are actually empowered by evil spirits. Because domination is what Satan is all about. He has no respect for people's free will whatsoever. All he wants to do is to keep them in bondage, whereas Jesus wants them to be free. So any kind of really heavy, authoritarian, dominating leadership in the church is of the devil. It is not of the Holy Spirit. And I tend to call it spiritual rape. I mean, we know what it is when a man rapes somebody. He's stronger, so he goes in, he overpowers, he takes what he wants, even though he's no right to do it. And it's because he's stronger that he's able to. Now, spiritual rape is when people who, for whatever reason, are stronger than others. And so they impose 
what they want, regardless of what the other people think. I mean, sometimes you get leaders and they're kind of like, they think they've got something from the Lord. And right, they're in, everyone's got to accept it. And they, they push it on you. And they push it on you and they make it quite clear. They know it's of God, so you've got to accept it. But what they miss out is this. They forget that that has first got to be tested by the people who he's talking to. Can you see? No one can say, right, this is of God, do it. And put them under pressure if they don't. Because even if it is of God, and even if you can demonstrate it's from the Bible, people have got to have time to discover that for themselves. But when you've got people who sort of dominate, they just thrust it on you and they give you no choice in it. They're stronger than you, they overcome it. Now I call that spiritual rape, and it is as evil as ordinary rape. Do you see the point? And weak people get railroaded by Christians with, you know, stronger, you know, sort of personalities and characters. And it's totally wrong. If someone is able to do that, and some people do have the character to do it, there's nothing wrong in being potentially able to. It's like you sort of bodybuilders, you, you know, you could potentially break my back. There's nothing wrong with the fact that you're strong enough, but it would be wrong if you did it. Can you see? So if someone knows that they've got the strength of character and personality, whereby they could overcome people's free will, whip them up in their own enthusiasm and people get carried along, then any Christian who has that kind of character has got a double duty to make sure that they're never using it for that purpose. Uh, it's rather like, you know, these sort of big meetings when you have the cues for people to go forward. And you go forward for ministry. And I mean, the number of people as they go forward, and I've seen them spiritually right up front. I've seen the people who are up there imposing their will on them about this, that or the other. You know, they start casting demons out of you, regardless of whether you think you've got a demon, and regardless of whether or not you actually want them to pray for you there and then. Can you see? And it's almost taken that the, you know, the mere fact that you've gone up front means that they can do what they like with you. Can you see, that is failing to recognise the free will of the person involved. In fact, it's failing to recognise that there's a person there at all. It's treating them like a cipher or something like that. Always got to make sure anything that sort of dominates is always of the devil. And to railroad somebody's free will is always wrong to make people do things against their free will. All right. Well, I mean, it's like, say, tithing, something like that. A Christian ought to give money. But as soon as you have a system that puts them under pressure to make them do it, that's wrong. Because the Bible says it's got to be a free will offering. And as soon as you pressure people or land a system on them whereby they've got to, and you've got a means to check up on them if they haven't, then you've railroaded their free will. And that also is of Satan. So domineering leadership in the church is not of God. And here, Peter writes to a church, and he tells them just that. And he says, rather than that, he says, but by being examples to the flock by being examples. He says, don't dominate them. He said, rather, be examples to them. Now, the Greek word there is tupos, and it means a blow. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you, you're not them into submission. That's not what it's meaning. The idea here, here is that the Greek word is a blow or a punch, and it's the impression left by it. Now, we're not talking about black eyes. The whole idea here is it's the mark left by a blow. Can you see the blow has created a mark? And that what Peter is talking about is that you leave your, as a leader, you leave your mark on the people you're leading by how you live. Is he? That's how he says to do it. He says, don't dominate them. He says, but by the life you lead, you show them how to do it. So it's not saying this is what you've got to do, go away and do it. It's actually by the life you lead, you're creating an impression on everyone. And that impression is actually being used by the Holy Spirit to bring people deeper and deeper into the obedience that Jesus wants for them. So, tupos, a blow. But interestingly enough, that Greek word, we get various English words through it. We get a type, we get model and example. You know, we talk about a model pupil or something like that. It's a whole idea. By being an example, by showing people how to do it, with that kind of life, you create an impression on them in the power of the Holy Spirit that is going to bring them more and more, assuming they want it, is going to bring them more and more into a line with what God wants. Just go to Matthew and let's see the other place where this a uh, Greek word, katakureo, sort of dominate, um, is actually used. And in Matthew 20, <clears throat> and again we'll see here how Jesus says that eldership is the exact opposite of that. Matthew 20 and verse 25. Jesus called to him, uh, called them to him and said, you know that the Gentiles lord it over them. There it is, Catechurea. Lord it over them, all right? And their great men exercise authority over them. Isn't it interesting? In this instance, Jesus talks about great men, all right? And yet, as we're going to see, he's going to say it's the exact opposite in the kingdom of God. And isn't it funny when people talk about great men of God? Has that ever made you wonder? All these great men of God. And what lies behind it is that you cannot question great men of God, is he? It's not allowing for the fact they might be wrong. And so someone's saying something, it's not biblical, and they say, but this is what so-and-so believes, and he was a great man of God. And therefore they're saying, so you mustn't believe it. Now, the point is not what some great man of God said, because he might have been wrong. You see, there's the satanic kind of blackmail behind this. He says, it shall not be so amongst you. No great men and no lording it over. He said, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, and he's playing with words here. He says, or oh, if you really do want to be a great man, then you must be, uh, sorry, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And they're two different words. The first word is servant, and that word in the Greek is slave, a slave. So what Jesus is saying here is that when it comes to leadership in the kingdom of God, elders are the servants of the church. They are not the lords 
of the church. Have no right to dominate because they just don't have that kind of authority. No one does. Elders are servants of the church. They are not its laws. The reason is because there is one Lord. There is one Lord of the church and that is Jesus himself. Just go back to Acts 20 again to see it there as well. Paul stamps this all over his teaching about eldership. Acts 20, 28, read it again. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Paul never let the elders forget that they were sheep as well and they were sinners too. They weren't some breed apart. They were just people among the people. An elder is one of the people. All right. Let's actually see now two little pictures that are given in the Bible that kind of depicting eldership. Because remember, we're dealing with the nature of eldership, not what it does, but the nature. We're seeing its servanthood and all this kind of thing. And uh, in fact, they're both in the same chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Go to it. And these are two little pictures. You know, Paul likens elders to two things. And it's interesting how he does it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and first of all, verse 10 and 11. And he says, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our behaviour to you. There you are. See, Paul said, we set you an example. We earned our right to lead. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exalted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to lead a life worthy of God. And what he says here is, we are among you, and he says that we were like a father with his children. And there you have Paul likening an elder to being like a father. And, I mean, the whole point about fatherhood, as it ought to be, sadly not always as it is, but fatherhood as it ought to be, is the loving strength and the support and the concern. Someone you can always go to. Someone who will always be there if you need them. That is what a father is. And Paul said, we were like a father to you. Now, that's a far cry from big stick authoritarianism, isn't it? Paul says we were like a father. Go to verse 7 and we'll see the other thing he says. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nurse taking care of her children. Mind you if you've ever thought that elders are nurses. That's a thought, isn't it? But that is what Paul likens them to. Now, two things there. First of all, he says that as a nurse, he says, we were gentle among you. Now, what's interesting with that word gentle, it's the only time in the whole Bible that that Greek word appears. The only time. It's not the normal word for gentle. It's a completely different one. It's epios. The only time it's ever used is here, and it means quite specifically mild. Now, I mean, sometimes we rib the idea of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, as if sort of Jesus was weak and, you know, sort of compromised. He didn't. Jesus was strong. But there were times when Jesus was mild. And here, Paul says that when we were amongst you, we were mild 
in how we treated you. And this word, Epios, it was used by Greek writers to characterise a nurse, and I mean, we're not talking National Health Service nurse, but children's nurse, all right, like nurse maid. And the Greeks used this word to characterise a nurse who was looking after difficult children, all right? Now, that is how they used this word. It was sort of, say, taking, you've got, I mean, it's like we call them today a nursery nurse, all right? And say a nursery nurse has got a real group of horrors, all right? Now, the point is that, okay, she's going to know when to be tough with them, but at the same time, she's going to be mild with them. She's going to give them love. It's not going to be harsh authoritarianism. There's going to be the mildness there of a nursemaid to difficult people. Or they use this word of, as, of, of a teacher who's got trying pupils to teach. So what we're talking about is that some people, if they were a nursery nurse and they had a kind of a crash full of horrors, mm -hmm. right, or they were a teacher and they had a particularly naughty class of children, then what the good elder is not going to do, it's not going to come to the point where he kind of like suddenly says, right, that's it, I can't do a thing with you. That's it. <laughs> to you lot. Storms out. Is he? Now that is the opposite of what Paul says here. Regardless of what they were put through, the knocks they took because they were leaders, they were mild with them. Always gentle. You know, not calling a spade a spade when it had to be done, but it's the mildness that is putting the people before your own frustrations. So you're not giving in to your own frustrations because all you're thinking is, of, is the good of the people. So Paul says that as an elder, he was mild. He knew how to be tough, but that was only absolutely last resort, as we're going to see in a couple of studies' time. But he was always mild with people whenever he could be. The word means a sweet forbearance. There'll always be a smile for you. Isn't that a lovely thought? Elders have always got a smile for you. That's the kind of thing that he's going on. And they also, this word was also used of children's parents. You know, the Greek writers would simply talk, use this word describing, you know, the kind of the feelings that parents had towards their children. So that is mild, epius. But let's look at nurse, all right, because he's saying, like a nurse, we were gentle among you. And this nurse, trophos, it meant a nursemaid. But it was also a Greek word used of a nursing mother breastfeeding her baby. And it comes from the verb trapho, which means to bring up as in nourishing and feeding, weaning your baby. And so what you've got, I mean, is, is, is there anything milder? Is there anything sweeter than a mother nursing her baby? And Paul says, that is how we were with you. And that is what eldership is supposed to be in the churches wherever the eldership is placed. So we've seen Paul says that we were a father to you, but what we've just seen now is that he was saying and we were a mother to you as well. Father and mother. Isn't that interesting? That is what eldership is. Now then, let me say as well that the nature of elders, all right, we've already seen that they are sinners, they are sheep too. They're not breed apart. They might like to think they are, but good elders won't think they are. But elders are sheep too. Which means this, elders are going to make mistakes as well. I mean, how could you possibly have 
elders who don't, is he? Now, it's very easy on the one hand, all right, that we can think, oh, he's saying that elders are sheep, you know, they're just the same as us, and think, oh, oh, that's good. Hardly agree. Amen, 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 all right? And then as soon as an elder does something wrong, down on him like a ton of bricks, what do you think you're doing? How you're supposed to be now, is he? That's ridiculous. Because if you're going to accept on the one hand that elders are sheep as well, then you've got to expect on the other hand that there are obviously going to be times when elders get it wrong. Of course, here, Robert and I have done and doubtless will continue to make mistakes. If we do, we do our best. If you think we've done something wrong, come and tell us. We do our best to be open. But obviously, we will continue to make mistakes. Now, what I want to say is this, all right, because everything I've said about eldership is working in the favour of the people being led, all right? Obviously, all the qualifications are there to protect the people from bad eldership. But what I'm going to say now isn't for the protection of the people, it's for the protection of the people who are elders, all right? And it's simply this, if we do make mistakes, bear with us. You know, don't come down on us like a ton of bricks if we do make mistakes, because we will make mistakes. That isn't how elders deal with the people, and that isn't how people should deal with the elders, all right? That's forbearance has got to work both ways. Go to 1 Timothy. I'm not saying you have to put up with really unscriptural behaviour. That's not what I'm saying as well. But we all get it wrong, all right? And if, if, if we do, you know, spare us a thought, we're sheep too, and we often get it wrong. 1 Peter, uh, sorry, he, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Yeah, I got it wrong. Absolutely. Oh, I repent. I repent. I humble myself. I humble myself. Yeah. 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. And listen to what Paul says here about elders. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour. So what Paul says is that elders who are really doing a good job are worthy of double honour. He doesn't say they're worthy of honour. He says they're worthy, when they're really doing well, they're worthy of double honour, all right? So what that means is this. Even if there are times when Robert and I aren't doing too great, and I'm sure there'll be many of them, even if there are times when we're not doing so great, we are nevertheless worthy of single honour. Is it a point? Elders who rule well are worthy of double honour which must imply that when they're cocking it up, they are at least worthy of honour. <laughs> and we've seen that because elders are sheep as well, they are going to be muddling their way through. I'm not saying elders are ever excused from sin. We're not saying that. But all I'm saying is that even when elders get it wrong, they are still worthy of single honour. It's not easy doing it. Okay. Now, at this point, I just want to say a bit more about something we mentioned a few talks ago, and it seems to be the place to deal with it, and it's the whole thing about raising up new elders, all right? Because, obviously, in this fellowship, in time, we're going to need more elders. As the fellowship grows numerically, so the leadership is going to need to grow as well. So, in time, we are going to need other elders. However, there is no hurry, 
all right? And you'll see why there's absolutely no hurry uh, later on when we do a study on what the Bible says about deacons. So we're going to need leaders, more elders in time, although there's no hurry. Now, the question is this. How will we know who the next elder or elders are? All right? That's the question. If God is raising up another elder or other elders, how are we going to know that God is doing it? All right. Now, there are going to be three factors, which must, three things which have got to converge. And only when these three things come unmistakably together, then you know that it's time to increase the number of elders. All right. And the three things are this. We're asking, how do we know if a man amongst us is being raised up to be an elder and it's time for him to be an elder? Right, number one, his life will meet the qualifications that we've seen in the Timothy and Titus lists. All right? His life will meet those qualifications. Plus, the other one we've seen tonight, that he'll be a failure. I, you'll know that you can go to him with your sins and problems because... He's in the same boat and he knows it, is he? So that's the first thing. His life will meet the scriptural qualifications for being an elder. Right, number two. By the time he becomes an elder, or the, thing, the second thing that you'll realise, hey, God is raising up an elder here, is that the person concerned will have already been recognised by the church as being an elder, and people will already be quite naturally turning to him as such. Do you see? I.e., the church corporately will be <coughs> saying it's obvious that they're an elder because people in the church will already be treating them like one, they'll be going to them, etc, etc. And of course what that implies is this, the church will recognise that an elder is being raised up, but that presupposes that the people know him really well. Do you see the point? Because if the people don't, how can they know that his life qualifies? And the point is that over months, over years perhaps, People have suddenly real. hey, now this guy, crikey, the last six months I've been practically turning to him as if he was an elder. And everyone will kind of know that, that he will be being recognised. So that will be the second thing. His life will meet up with the biblical qualifications. The people in the church will be practically turning him to like, turning to him as an elder already because they'll so know him, they'll so trust him, they'll so realise that his life is, is in order so that he can be, all right? And then the third thing is the existing elders will know as well. So that if you ever got the situation where, say, you've got a church with elders, I mean, we'll say here, I mean, say one day, Robert and I announce, right, okay, the Lord has shown us that so-and-so is going to be an elder. Robert and I are now going to make this person an elder, all right? Number three. If people were saying, you're joking. Oh, you're kidding. Come off it. That's a joke. Now, it would be obvious that Robert and I got it wrong. Can you see? It's only when these three things come together. The fact that someone is qualified isn't enough. Because you'll remember, I said some weeks ago, the qualifications for being an elder is simply Christian maturity. 
And I mean, I'm hoping that one day all our men will be mature enough to be elders. But they won't all be elders because you only need a fairly small number. So the fact that someone's life qualifies is not of itself enough. There's got to be a need. All right, okay. Now, the second one isn't enough. The fact that the church are recognising them. Because again, I hope that, I mean, as our memphis over the years, if we're really bringing Christians into greater and greater maturity, then there'll be far more men mature enough to be elders than are needed. It practically means you'll be able to turn to anyone in the church. That's brilliant. So that on its own, the fact that people are saying, wow, this guy would make a terrific elder, that on its own isn't enough because there might not be a need. And if the existing elders thought, ah, oh, this elder, right, we're going to make him an elder, that's not enough on his own. So say the rest of the church might say, oh, crikey, they obviously don't know him as well as we do. Yeah. So it's only when those three things come together, it will be absolutely obvious that a new elder is being raised up amongst us. And that obviously, the thing that underlines all that is that it will be obvious that whoever it is will have been with us for a long time. He will have proved himself to the fellowship in small things. He will be a faithful friend to us all. He will have given good service to us all. Because it's only in that long period of time, obviously, that anyone in the church could recognise, hey, here's a guy that God is raising up. And of course, what that means as well is that anything of what I call upfront ministry is totally irrelevant. It's got nothing to do with it. I mean, even if, say, we had someone, um, I mean, sort of, say a well-known Bible teacher moved into Chigwell, all right? He might be really well-known on the scene or whatever, all right? And say he starts coming along here. Now, obviously, he will be absolutely free to carry on the ministry he's got out there and with our blessing and all the support that we can give him. But it doesn't mean that just because he's got a proven ministry that inside two months he's going to be an elder in the fellowship. Can you see? It doesn't mean that at all. He might be one day, but you might not need one. And then you get into the ridiculous thing, well, we've got to make them at least an honorary elder, and then, elder, and then eldership has become a position, the very thing it isn't. It's a function. You see, we're back to square one. So, therefore, it's important to, to understand that. Let's now sum up the nature of eldership. All right. An elder is, and I want now to give you the definitive biblical statement to sum up the nature of an elder. An elder is one of the lads. And that is what an elder is. That is the nature of eldership. He will have come up from among the plebs. He will be someone who has been among the plebs for a good long time, and he's been just a pleb. And having been a pleb for a good long time, then, if God calls him, he is free to become an elder. Now, why is it so important that he's got to be a pleb, a well-proven pleb, before it's safe to make him an elder? I'll tell you, if he hadn't been a pleb, if he's not a fully qualified pleb, then he's got no way of realising that when he becomes a leader, he's still a pleb. Is he? <laughs> If a leader hasn't been a pleb, how can he realise that even leaders are plebs? Whereas if you had someone who wasn't a pleb, who wasn't ready for leadership, make them a leader and they're not a pleb, they're a leader. 
when it's only when you've got someone who's been a thoroughly proven pleb amongst us that when you make him a leader, he understands that he's still a pleb. He's just a leader pleb. And that's all there is to it, you see. Uh, let me at this point, so I've introduced this word and everyone's using it, you know, this thing about a pleb. I'll just say very quickly, um, it sort of comes from plebeian, plebeian. And uh, according to the dictionary, the plebeians um, in the Latin language in ancient Rome, uh, plebeians was what the Romans called their common folk. You know, just, just the common people. And that is what the, you know, so in Roman society, if you were like just the common average man in the street, you were a pleb, all right? Whereas, of course, if you were a leader, you weren't a pleb. And of course, the whole point about the kingdom of God is that we are all plebeians. We are all equally the common people. And the elders are also the common people. They do not lead from on high, they lead from amongst. An elder, by nature, is one of the lads. It is simply plebs who have landed the role of being an elder pleb, rather than just a non-elder pleb. So that is the importance of this thing about being plebs. Until a man realises through and through he's a pleb, he could never be a leader, or he might get airs and graces and think that now he's a leader, he's not a pleb anymore. And remember, an elder is simply one of the lads. Next time, we move on to a different area of eldership. And what we move on to next time is the subject of eldership authority and submission.